I always wonder what people think when I go through series that get long. I always wonder if part of the reason people make fun of me is to tell me to move faster or because they're actually really enjoying the series and they're just having a good time with it. I've been enjoying the study of Exodus. I hope you are. I think sometimes we struggle with connections. I think this is one of those texts that has very clear connections with one of the challenges facing us in our culture, one of the challenges probably facing you on a regular basis for which you might not see the connections initially. But when you look at this text, Moses is struggling with what he knows is an inevitable problem with being a messenger on behalf of God. You'll recognize that in this text, Moses doesn't come out looking very pretty. I think that might be too quick of an analysis by many of us. When you look in verse 1 with me, let me go ahead and read it just to introduce the text a little bit for you. God has just commissioned him, told him to go to Egypt. Moses answers, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses recognizes, I think, the tension that many people have with Christian faith. Moses is going to go to Israel. At this point, he's about an 80-year-old man. His brother is 83, and we know by the end of the text, his brother will be sent to go with him. And he's going to walk to some 2 million people and say, hey, this burning bush talked to me. And from that bush, the voice of God told me to come and lead you out. And they're supposed to all believe. So if some 80-year-old person came into your life and said, let me tell you God's will, I've heard the voice of God, you should do this. Now, if we just pause there, I want you to consider what God is asking of Israel. As a loose tribe of people, they have no civic unity. They have no governmental leadership that's joining them together under common laws. They're a band of people who shares the ethnic heritage from Jacob. They've been unified somewhat by persecution because Pharaoh has united them, both geographically in certain areas as well as by persecution, alienating them from out of Egypt unto themselves. So there's probably more unity because of Pharaoh's persecution than less. But in order to speak out against Pharaoh, in fact, go back with me to chapter 3. Look in verse 18. In contrast to the text that we've just read, verse 18 says, They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days. Journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. So the elders, without having heard from God, are going to go with Moses confront the most powerful leader of the most powerful nation in this area who's got a military army and already has a proverbial axe to grind against these people. And they're going to stand up to him, risk both life and family, and all they have is the word of two 80-plus-year-old men. And when they stand against Pharaoh... They don't just risk military oppression, they risk slavery oppression as well as the infanticide that is currently going on being intensified. They're a bunch of farmers 
and brick makers and bricklayers. They don't have military weapons. They're not organized in military coalition. They are not trained soldiers. They are not organized together in order to follow generals and commanders by which they can be quickly mobilized against the Egyptians. And Moses is going to come as a common man and say, God spoke to me. Moses looks at this and says, hey, hey, I don't think they're going to believe. Now, we have, we have a similar tension in our culture. We hold forth a book written by common men in common language by which we should bend our whole life in obedience because we believe. And the question by outsiders or maybe the question by the person that you are trying to call to saving faith is, are you kidding me? This is just a common book that could be plagiarized or manufactured or created by common man. Why would I risk everything and expose myself to submission to a God you've just made up? This is Moses' task. And Moses questions God, if I go, surely they will not believe. Unless you think that maybe this text doesn't actually emphasize that question, I, I would just suggest to you that the, in the entire book of Exodus, the, the word for belief used here, it's the common word amen. And it means faithfulness or trustworthiness, something that can be relied upon, is used about nine times in the entire book. Over six of them are here. So there's only two other verses outside of this, chapter 14, verse 31, and in chapter 19, verse 9, you'll see that verb repeated. Every other use of that verb is right here in this chapter. So when you look down in verse 1, he says, they will not believe me or listen. Verse 5, God says he's giving these signs so that they may believe. And when you come down to verse 8, he says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen. And once again, go down with me to verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen. So you see this repetition of belief so that the last verse of the chapter ends again using that word believe. God's concern for Israel and Moses' concern for Israel is that by the use of common tools like Moses that the Israelites need confirmation that he is no mere man with a manufactured message merely from the authority of a man. And the tension is, when do you believe that God spoke? And when do you choose to disbelieve because clearly it's merely a man who's spoken and from the authority of men? That's a tension for Israel that they're about to face. Moses, seeing it, calls upon God to help him resolve this tension. Belief requires something that's believable. An 80-year-old man saying, hey, I want to be your king, could be motivated by selfish and not godly authority. So therein lies the problem before the people. And here's this problem. I'll say it again. God uses common tools for uncommon purposes. God uses common tools for uncommon purposes. So it would be, maybe just by analogy, without me calling any 
ungodly authority to myself, it wouldn't be wrong for you to go home today and say the Lord spoke to me during the sermon. That is, God is using common means, a mere sinner, a mere man, and using mere words to do something incredibly uncommon. And God is doing that all of the time in this world. So by what measure do we respond by saying, this isn't actually that common? This isn't something to be cast aside as just a mere fabrication of men. How do you know this is to be trusted? Verse 2, the Lord graciously provides confirmation. God graciously provides confirmation. So we have the problem of common tools, and now we have the provision as God confirms. Look in verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? <laughs> it's a very obvious question. It's a staff. He's a shepherd. That's what he carries around. It's his tool to implement. And throughout the whole Bible, I think sometimes we miss how common staffs are. It's a normal thing to have a staff. Uh, just, just in analyzing staffs this week, which is the great thing pastors get to do, is run down these rabbit trails that seem absolutely pointless to the rest of you all. You might not know this, that David goes out to meet Goliath with a... Did you know that? <laughs> staff is a common implement that's used throughout the Bible. Well, here Moses' staff in his hand becomes this instrument by which God provides signs for Israel, that they might know that God has spoken. So initially, verse 2, what is that in your hand? It's a staff, verse 3. So throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I'm not sure if we're trying to comment on Moses here or the reality of the snake. I go with the reality of the snake. But it could be, like many of you, that, that Moses was not an expert in snakes, and so seeing a snake, maybe he had a right to, or maybe he didn't run away from it because it could have been a cobra, but it could also just be a simple snake that had no venom. We really don't know. We just know it's a snake. Many commentators struggle with whether or not to take this as an, as an image of perhaps Pharaoh, whose symbol carried with it, even in his crown piece, a serpent, a cobra, that was almost deified in the Egyptian culture and for which Pharaoh, who acted shrewdly in chapter 1, seems to be partnered with in symbolism. Maybe even Satan himself. Doug Stewart in his commentary says there's no significance to the snake. I, I think that's probably too dismissive. But the scripture here does not give us any clear indication of exactly why God brings about a snake. But it is interesting to note that later when Moses brings about this same miraculous sign, that the Egyptian magicians are also familiar with turning a staff into a snake. Right? So Moses throws down, and then Egypt, you know, Pharaoh, unimpressed, says, oh yeah, well look at my guys. And he brings his guys up, and it's like this old western duel, and they're, they're going at it. And, and so Pharaoh has his magicians throw down serpents, and God shows his superior power when Moses' staff eats the snakes. Some commentators have suggested that these magicians have learned how to paralyze real vipers so that they appeared like stiff rods, but then when they released them, they would come to their senses and the snakes, which were actually snakes all along, were then very obviously snakes as opposed to stiff, petrified snakes. 
It could also be just that they have the power of the occult and the devil behind them and that God has provided for them opportunity to do something supernatural over which God has always declared himself to be sovereign. God has allowed Satan to be the prince of the power of the air. He's currently at work in the sons of disobedience, the scripture says. So it could be that even back in these days, God had given some provision for some supernatural manifestation by the, by the, by the powers of hell itself. We don't know why precisely through the text, but we know it is significant. Even later, God tells Moses, get your staff that turned into a serpent. As though Moses would wonder which staff. It's that staff, the one that turned into a snake. So Moses grabs it by the tail and God immediately reverses the miracle. That is, he grabs this viper that he had just run from by the tail. Now, I will tell you, not being a snake expert, grabbing a snake by the tail seems really dangerous. It seems like you'd rather control its head where the venom and fangs are. He grabs it by the tail, brings it under his control, and it seems as though immediately upon grabbing this serpent, verse 4, he catches it by the tail as he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. God reverses the miracle, showing his power over this deadly serpent. And that's not where God stops, though. God God suggests that this miracle alone was given, verse 5, purpose clause here. For what purpose? Because you've got to admit, at parties, this would be cool. I mean, this is a really amazing ability that God is granting Moses to do But it's not for Moses. It's for what reason? This is God's grace, not for Moses, but for whom? That they might believe. In other words, Moses knows God's speaking to him. Moses doesn't need more confirmation that God is God. But the people to whom he goes, where he shows up as this 80-year-old out of the wilderness and says, hey, I'm about to risk your prosperity, your livelihoods, and your children's lives as I go and stand up to Pharaoh. They need confirmation that he actually comes not in his own word and power, but in the very power of God. Verse 5, that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the repetition of those names is to remind them that God is a covenant-keeping God. If you were to read back through Genesis, the first man, the patriarch to whom God first covenants is Abraham, in the Abrahamic covenant at least. And God covenants with Abraham saying, from your descendants will rise up a people, and they're going to be granted this land. That's why it's called the promised land. And in chapter 17, or excuse me, 17 and 18, you'll see that from, a, from Sarah, will arise one who will be a king over nations. And we know who that is. The New Testament makes it clear. And so these promises come from Abraham, but then you see them repeated to Jacob. You see them repeated to Isaac. And so when, when God says they will understand that I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, he's not merely saying I'm the divine being who spoke to them. He's saying, I am the one who promised personally to protect as shepherd over your descendants, to provide for them a place 
and provide for them the privileged inheritance of a king who will rule over his people. I'm that God. I'm the personal God who speaks to Abraham and keeps his promises to Sarah. I'm the God who protected Jacob despite his boneheaded dishonesty. I am that God. Believe in me. God doesn't stop there. In his grace, he gives a further sign. Look down with me in verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. Probably something like putting it in his vest pocket. So Moses does this. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, this hand was leprous like snow. That had to be a, a frustrating moment for Moses. Like, okay, I'll put my hand in my jacket. I pull it out, and now I have a death sentence. Thank you, God. I, I don't know what was going through Moses' mind. But leprosy is kind of a, a catch-all word. We have it today that we use. I think it's something called Hennessy's disease. But probably it's more of a catch-all idea for a, a skin disease. And in the Old Testament, it usually indicated both sin and a death sentence upon the person who had it. The Old Testament world was terrified of these diseases. They would say far away. So we would read through the Old Testament, there's circumscribed laws for how to deal with infectious diseases. And what do you do? Forgive the little aside here, but just, just for sake of reason in our culture, because we got it so wrong, you quarantine people who are sick. Not every person who has a pulse. And you quarantine them because being sick, they might infect people who are whole. So that when someone got leprosy in Egypt or in Israel, they had to stay far away from the healthy community. And God uses that as leverage, as a teaching point, to suggest that sin also is very communicable. For the church or the people of Israel to tolerate people who are in clear sin is for them to risk the sin being looked upon lightly and spreading through the community and thereby defiling more. Moses pulls his hand out and sees it's leprous. It's not only a death sentence, it's a declaration that he's unclean to be around others. He puts his hand back in his jacket, if you continue reading with me. Excuse me, back in his robe. I'm wearing a jacket, he wasn't. Look again in verse 7. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So he pulls it out, and it's once again clean. God declaring in no uncertain terms to Moses, while a death sentence was on you, while an incurable disease was upon you that no human doctor can fix, it is nothing for me to bring about instantaneous healing and wholeness from a disease that is a death sentence for the rest of the world. So Moses not only has the declaration of God's power over serpents that can kill, he has the declaration that God, unlike the other gods, and in reference to that, leprosy was seen as a judgment by the gods. So for an Egyptian to get leprosy, they would see the gods' displeasure, and their hope was to go to the gods and appeal to them for healing. Moses puts his hand in and pulls it out, and it's miraculously healed. But there's a third miracle. Before we get too far, look at how God introduces that miracle. In verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. 
All right. So he's, he's kind of introducing on the backside of that second miracle, hey, the first one should work. But in case it doesn't and they need a second one, the leprosy will do it. And you keep reading in verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So once again, we have a third miracle. This one is a little bit different in some ways. It requires the water of the Nile. Moses doesn't have water with him from the Nile. But when he gets to the Nile River, he has to take water out of it, and God will miraculously turn this into blood. I would just again suggest to you that the, the significance is probably not lost on Moses. The Nile, which, which actually is at Hapi, which is an Egyptian god, and is named for an Egyptian god, has also been the place of execution for all these infant boys. This river that is the lifeblood of Egypt. And when it flows over, it waters the whole region. And if even today you're to look at like the Nile River at night from a satellite, you'll see lights streaming down the Nile River because it is the center of, of agricultural need in a desert land, that river. And God is going to show and preach to the Egyptians that this instrument of murder and death can be brought to a place of submission under God's sovereignty. Not only that, he is actually revealing that it is a river of blood and death as it's become for the Israelites. You would know if you read the rest of Exodus that Moses faithfully follows through on God's command here and God's commission. So as you're just thinking through this text, there's a very reasonable problem. There is a gracious provision in these miracles. But I would like to just take you through the text one more time and consider that the theme of the text is not the miracles, but is the response to these miracles. Look again with me in verse 1. They will not believe or what? Listen. That word probably does not mean or is not meant to communicate they wouldn't hear me. The point is, they wouldn't hear and obey. And so you would see a parent using the word listen this way. You know, you tell your children to clean the rooms, and they don't clean their rooms, and mom says, why aren't you listening to me? If the smart aleck kid was saying, well, we heard you, mom, we just didn't obey. He's missing the point of the word listen in that sentence, isn't he? And probably deliberately so. We would all hear the mom to be saying, why did you not obey? Not how come your ears aren't working, but how come your heart isn't working. Okay, that's the point of this text, right? It's, it's they will hear my words and disbelieve them, and because of disbelief, they will not obey me. So when I say, hey, let's go confront Pharaoh, they're going to be like, you're on your own, buddy. We're not doing that. When Moses says, let's risk our, our good name and at least the lukewarm feelings of Pharaoh towards us, they're not going to go with me because they're not going to believe and therefore they will not do what you've called me to lead them to do. And you'll see that repetition again in verses 8 and 9 in the Lord's mouth. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen. 
His point isn't merely they, they would say they believe you. It's that belief, as James says, produces behavior. The Pharisees get this wrong, don't they? They are hollow shells with hearts of disbelief while getting all the behavior right, and Jesus condemns it. That has never been the way we approach God. But lest we flip to the other side and say belief can be devoid of behavior, both the Old Testament and New Testament make it very clear that the foundation from which good works flow is a complete rest and confidence in the work of God to do what it claims to do. God claims to um, be willing and able and present to lead Israel out of bondage, and their belief in that will lead them to walk that faith, not just claim it. Moses sees the problem here. It is that their disbelief will lead to disobedience, but he wants to call Israel to belief that leads to godly obedience or godly listening. This problem is similar to other common problems. Consider the Word of God. If I ask you this question, I might confuse you, so I'm going to ask it. Most of you know my questions, and most of you know that means whatever answer you have, it will probably be wrong. So just in your mind, play with me for a second. Is the Word of God written by men? So we can see perhaps a secular mind saying it's merely men. But we know that this book is a divinely inspired book written through the instruments, the common instruments of pen and parchment, but through the supernatural, moving, inspiring, leading work of God's Holy Spirit. So that at one and the same point, we could say something like this. Moses wrote chapter 4. And we could say, God speaks and says in chapter 4. And as Christians, we often like both those sentences, we feel no contradiction. Because there is none. But to someone who is unfamiliar with the scriptures and how God, using common instruments, provides a supernatural book. A very book that he says gives life, implants faith, and brings us to living eternal life. This book that does all of that is not merely through the hands of common man, but is supernaturally inspired so that it brings with it the promise of eternal life to those who believe its words. It's an incredible book. It is not to be taken as the mere words of men. Every word of this book is true. Because the God who inspired it is true. On a daily basis, you're asked whether or not you believe that in circumstances of life. We are asked whether or not we believe this word is true when the church passes an offering plate. And by faith, you know that God is pleased with the sacrificial, cheerful giving of his people. And by disbelief, you don't give. By belief, we forgive the people we're married to who repeatedly sin the same exact ways that they sinned last week and the week before and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that. And we could stop at the time you get married because we'll go back and we'll find those same patterns of struggle and hair to most of us. 
My wife still deals with the same bozo that she said I do to a long time ago. And those repetitive sins bring wounds and sensitivity that's really hard to forgive. And it is by faith that God's word calls her to a life of submission to the Son of God, not a life of common sense by which she trusts in her own reason. We are constantly being asked, do we believe in this commonly delivered, uncommon book? And we are in the same situation as the people of Israel. If we are not careful and we just see with mere human eyes, all we see is mere human book. And if we are able to see with eyes of faith, we see that this book is precious. As Hebrews says, it is God's living word. Able to divide the very intents and thoughts of your heart. This is why the Christian should be so desperate to read it, to understand it, and to let it understand him or her. That we might be under the judgment of God through his word. And by doing so, be rescued from ultimate judgment to come. Right? Because if we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But we don't judge ourselves on our own measure, but by this divinely granted inspired, living scriptures. But it's not just that that we must trust in. Going back to Genesis 1, God's program has always been that there would be a human agent that he would use as an instrument of his grace for his people leading through the world at large. Right? Genesis 1, God grants to Adam the right and privilege to rule. He is ruling for God's sake so that God's ministry of ruling is through an agent that's just a common man. You might see this this really clearly noted when Samuel, in, in heartache, is frustrated with Israel when they say, hey, we want a king. And Samuel's hurt. I mean, he feels like the high school girl that just got broken up with. And God says, hey, it's not you, it's me. Right? Like, they've rejected me from being king, is what God says. But God had been using Samuel to lead his people. And so when they reject Samuel, it's not Samuel they're rejecting. It's actually God's kingship. So once again, Israel was called to follow a common man because he was God's instrument of leading the nation through his grace. Come to the New Testament. And 1 Timothy 2 would say something like this. There is one mediator between God and man, the what? The anthropon, the man, Christ Jesus. Where we get the word anthropology from? The study of humanity? Talking about Jesus as just a mere human. And so we're called to believe that this man who was born at least from human perception, through immorality, and grew up in the hillbilly country of Nazareth and was just a common Jewish man, is not actually a common Jewish man, but someone who is divinely given to us through a virgin miracle birth, was born in Bethlehem as prophecy predicted, was moved to Egypt, as the scriptures indicate is consistent with Israel's rescue from Egypt, was then raised in Nazareth so that he would come from Galilee, as the Old Testament scriptures predicted, 
And now, as the one who lives, was crucified, buried, and risen again, is actually the focus of our hope in God's divine rescue. And the skeptic looks and says, are you kidding me? Why would I believe in a common man who was killed and whose disciples fabricated some lie? It's just a common thing. But this has always been God's program, that through a mere man, he would rule the world in grace and goodness. So why then would you believe that this mere man is no mere man? So Acts 22, excuse me, Acts 2.22 says this simply. As Peter preaches, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, listen to this, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Moving forward down to verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So God has consistently called his people to believe, not only in the common, but in the common that has been supernaturally certified as his messenger of a divine message. It calls for faith. It calls for reliance upon God that, that he is both protecting us from false miracles that would call us to a false faith and a false God and also providing for us legitimate miracles that legitimize his representatives. Just, just as a note on the staff, look with me back in Exodus chapter 4, if you're still there with me. I want you to look down into verse... I want to take you down to verse 17 and then verse 20. As God finishes this dialogue with Moses, and Moses responds by questioning him in verses 10 through 16, finally God says, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do what? Signs. Remember Acts 2.22? This man was attested to you by God by the wonders, the miracles, and signs that he did in your midst. So God has called Israel to trust in a common man because he's been certified by the supernatural power of God as God's agent, and the staff ends up being the, the rod, the scepter, the symbol of God's power that Moses constantly uses in the miracles. Whether he's striking the Red Sea or whether he's doing other miracles like holding up his staff as God gives victory over military armies, God uses this staff as almost a badge certifying that this is God's agent speaking God's message for God's people. So look down at verse 20 with me. And Moses took the staff of whom? The staff of God. It hung up in the temple. Is that the right word? Hanged up in the temple? I don't know. I probably said that wrong. But it's up in the temple later as a symbol of God's work through Moses and Aaron to certify that they are God's agents. So we now have a scripture that has been delivered not through mere men. It has been authored through men as they are moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says, but is authenticated through the miracles and the signs and wonders that God did in Moses' life and once again in Jesus and his apostles' lives 
so that those early witnesses, whether they were the ancient Israelites who saw the miracle working power of God as he rescues them from Egypt, or whether it's through the Savior, who through healings and walking on water and providing bread, or through his apostles who healed people, who spoke in tongues, and who did other miraculous signs, God is calling his people to trust in the testimony that he has faithfully delivered in the past. And here's what genuine trust looks like. This text makes it clear. We don't just believe, we believe and listen. So I just ask you all, do you walk as one who is desperate to hear God speak? That this book that can seem so common for you is a treasure of uncommon worth. Perhaps, like many, you can say you believe it, but throughout the week it is unread, unstudied, and unheard. And maybe just because as a dad of many children at home, there are times where I feel like I'm clear and I must have been heard and the child doesn't move. This actually happened to me yesterday. I was like, hey, I'll leave the guilty party unnamed. Can you do this? And the child didn't move. Like, didn't move a hair. So you know what I did? I increased the volume, because I assumed the best of my child. Said, hey! And it's like, what, Dad? You need to do this. Oh, okay. Went off and did it. You know, I think there are some times where we have a heart that perhaps is compliant and, and generally faith-filled but if we don't actually hear God speak because we never open his word, we may not be disobedient. We're just neglectful. Listen, this is God's living word that he has attested by signs and miracles. If it is the word of Christ, the servant who he attested is his glorious Lord and Christ for our sakes, how can it lie unused, unstudied, unknown for the Christian who says it's the living word of God? Read and know your scripture. And more than that, God has spoken to you. As you struggle with sins, can I call you to evaluate your life on the basis of faith? So we do not want to produce a church that's doing a whole bunch of checklist Christianity. That heartlessness has no place in a faithful Christian's life. So when you struggle with obedience, rather than saying, I need to do more and make a better to-do list because it's January, why don't you ask yourself where you're struggling to believe? So let me just explain what I mean by that. Perhaps you think that your children only listen to you when you yell. I think everything in Scripture would indicate you need to not yell at your children. That anger and rage and wrath and clamor are actually sin. And we're called not to do them. And yet, I mean, I know my children, if I speak with rage, will very quickly obey. And they'll be very concerned to pay attention. And so there's, there's this call to recognize God calls me away from anger and rage. And if I am not paying attention, I will trust in my volume and consequences 
instead of submitting to God and not speaking that way and trusting in the living God's word by not doing that, instead trusting that a gracious parent does not stir his children up to anger, nor is he angry or wrathful or clamorous with his kids, because those are sins. Instead, with gentleness, he instructs his children. With faithfulness, he leads them to the Lord. With Christ-like patience, he repeats and repeats and repeats a call to follow grace and trust in Christ. And so if I were to rewind that as an angry person who's like, man, why am I struggling with anger so much? Perhaps I can recognize that it is a subtle indication of faithlessness. But our world tells us, well, try harder. Count to 10. Learn some disciplines. Take a deep breath a couple times. Listen, those might be techniques, but if your heart isn't faith-filled, they're merely heartless techniques. God wants your heart, not just your behavior. Again, the text says, believe and then listen. That is, believing leads to obedience. So, in Israel's call to believe and follow Moses, they are called to a massive risk. You know what I'm saying? They could get killed. They're going to follow this man. And so God graciously says, there is no risk because he's not a mere man. He's my agent. And there's no risk. And by, by no risk, I mean it is always worth it to follow God. So that we can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. There might be great cost, but there's nothing truly risked for those who follow God. So as God calls Israel to this incredible expression of faith by trusting in a man who's going to lead them through political risk, military risk, risk of an ocean and being pinned against an army, risk of starvation in a desert, risk of just losing their children as they conquer the promised land. Those would be human measures of risk. If we truly know that God is with us, there's no risk. Trust in God and follow him. If you are not following, it's probably a faith problem. It's not a try-harder problem. Look for God to have attested his word. He does so and records it with perfection in his word. This is the living word of God. Believe it and obey it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the conviction with which the authors identify for us those things that must be believed. I thank you that they remind us that we are not saved by our own efforts, but saved singularly by the grace that is through Jesus Christ. Father, I ask for everyone in this room, for their sakes, that you might turn their hearts to trust in Christ. Lord, where failure and despair have entered our hearts because we know that the power is not in us and try and try as we might, we cannot save ourselves. For that person, Lord, I ask that you would turn their hearts to Christ, that they might trust in him and rest rather than work. For those of us who have rested in Christ, Lord, remind us that by doing more and trying harder, we do not gain saving favor, but rather by believing and confidently walking in Christ, we are motivated out of love and trust to serve him. Lord, help us to listen carefully 
to the precious life-giving words that you have delivered to us through the mouths and instrumentation of the prophets and the apostles. Father, I ask that you would strengthen our church to follow after Christ, that we might look like him, that we might honor him, that as we call him Lord, he might respond that we are truly his because not only do we call him Lord, we obey him. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify your church. I ask that you would save those who are here who have yet to trust in this sweet truth that Jesus Christ has died to save sinners, to save them from the guilt as well as the penalty, the power of sin. All of that is forgiven for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you again for giving us such a precious hope, a secure hope, and a trustworthy hope. In Jesus' name, amen.